Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. In today's episode of The Neutral Ground, well, it's election day, so we can't really not talk about the election, can we? It's a pretty slow one here in Louisiana, but a big one nationally. But we do have some interesting local contests, and we'll talk with reporter Tyler Bridges about how Plaquemine Parish's elections have become a proxy war between the oil and gas industry and the trial lawyers who are trying to hold them accountable for damage to the state's coastline. Next, we'll be joined by John Zimmerman, who has been covering the child sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. I know we've been talking a lot about this topic at the neutral ground, but we can't really not talk about it this week since Archbishop Gregory Amond has for the first time released a list of every local clergyman believed to have abused a child. There are 57 names on the list and we'll talk about what the list does and doesn't reveal. And last, I'll talk to Gambit political editor Clancy Dubose about our mutual pal Frank Donzi, who died suddenly and way too soon Saturday morning at the age of 64. Frank was a mentor to a generation of reporters in the city, including me, and no one knows him better than Clancy, who went to high school with Frank and came up with him at the Times-Picayune. Joining us now is Tyler Bridges, who covers politics around Louisiana for The Advocate. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the big national story today is the election. Voters around the country are going to the polls in the first major national election since Donald Trump was elected. And while Trump isn't on the ballot, the election will widely be viewed as a referendum on his first two years and on two years of Republican stewardship of the country. And hardly anyone will be paying attention to Louisiana, even though all of our congressmen are on the ballot. They're all expected to be reelected easily. Nationally, that's not the case. Uh, Democrats are widely expected to make major gains in the House, but it's unclear whether they'll win enough seats to take control. And in the Senate, most people expect that to remain in Republican hands, but it's not settled either. Here in Louisiana, we've got a few constitutional amendments, including one that would require unanimous jury verdicts in felony cases, plus a race for Secretary of State. And we've also got a bunch of local races, uh, some of which are pretty interesting. Uh, Tyler, you spent some time down in Plaquemine Parish near the mouth of the Mississippi River recently. And there's a whole slate of local races down there, parish president, parish council, and so forth. And this year, there's a lot of outside interest in those races, even though it's a small parish. Why is that? Yeah, Gordon, typically uh, an election in Plaquemines Parish is fought over, you know, has the grass been cut are the mosquitoes being sprayed? Uh, very local issues. But this year, uh, really in an unprecedented way, uh, we have out thousands and thousands of dollars of outside money flowing. And from one side, it's the oil and gas industry. And the other side are trial lawyers. So what's, what's driving this raft of contributions? Sure. Uh, coastal parishes in Louisiana have filed lawsuits against oil and gas companies alleging that the drilling by the oil and gas companies years ago in the past has led to disappearance of the coast, that the the canals that they they, uh, dug has brought in saltwater intrusion and then also uh, pollution. And uh, 42 lawsuits have been filed by different parishes, and actually half of them have been filed by Plaquemines Parish, 21 filed by the parish council. So... This parish council uh, is up for election today, 
and each side wants to elect a favorable council going forward, the trial lawyers want to make sure who who are who have been hired by the parish council. They want to keep uh, they want to keep representing the council. The, the and there there's there was an effort last month by uh, the council pushed by oil and gas industry to kill that lawsuit. And so the oil and gas industry wants to elect enough friendly members to that council to kill that lawsuit. And it's very closely fought, right? In that in that vote, it was uh, they actually won a they. There was a majority of the council that voted, voted to kill the lawsuit, but there were two abstentions, which meant it stayed alive, right? Right. They needed five votes to kill the lawsuits filed by Plaquemines Parish Council, and there was only four votes. So uh, that's why each side is spending tens and thousands of dollars, uh, although the oil and gas is spending more, to elect the friendly council and also the parish president, because the parish president potentially could veto any any measure to kill that lawsuit, those lawsuits. Okay. And just to put this in a little broader context, there's a lot of coastal parishes in Louisiana, and not all of them have joined this effort to sue the oil and gas industry, right? Yes. And in fact, the, the Plaquemines Parish is really the point of the spear. Not only have they filed half of the lawsuits, but they are the one that's furthest in the legal uh, process. They are the ones that have the first case that has actually been scheduled to go into court, although that has been delayed by maneuvering by the oil and gas industry. But uh, the trial lawyers believe, and I think there's some evidence to, to, to say this, that they, their oil and gas industry would like to delay the lawsuits long enough till next year in the hopes that John Bell Edwards, the governor, who is very much a supporter of these coastal lawsuits. And the state has joined in as sort of a co-plaintiff, right? Right. That uh, if you can defeat John Bell Edwards uh, in the, the governor's race, uh, the state, the next governor, uh, could withdraw those lawsuits and weaken what the parishes are trying to do. Okay. So you've got the long view on the oil industry is kind of like, let's change over the parish council if we can and pull the plug on these and meanwhile, we're looking ahead to a year from now, and maybe we'll have a new governor. And in the meantime, maybe we can delay these lawsuits from getting a hearing as long as possible. Right. And also speaking of the long view, Gordon, one thing I picked up in my reporting is I, I think we, we should look for in, in 2019 uh, oil and gas industry and also lobby, the, the, the biggest uh, uh, business chamber, to be playing more in local elections and, and parish councils um, than in the past to try to elect more friendly members to, pro- to, vi- to prevent more of these potential lawsuits and also the whole issue of, of the industrial tax exemption. And there are a number of other parishes that have filed these suits. Yes, I think it's a total of six. Again, Plaquemines Parish has taken the lead. kind of in the vanguard, but there's, yeah. Yeah, and that's why okay. th- this election uh, in, in Plaquemines Parish is particularly important. And potentially, I can't remember, there may be as many as 20 or so parishes that could get involved in this based on having some coastal terrain. I, I don't remember the exact number. but Yes, yes, that is correct. And uh, um, elected officials in the other parishes have not yet filed suit, but there are certainly others who are looking to do so. And that's something the oil and gas, gas industry does not want to happen. Let me just say as an aside... People in the oil and gas industry say that the lawsuits filed by Plaquemines and the other parish has discouraged investment by right. the oil and gas industry. The trial lawyers say, well, actually, the oil prices are, are down far enough and, and changes in technology, and, and that's the reason 
for the decline uh, uh, in the oil and gas industry. In other words, there has been a less drilling and less exploration, but the, it's really an open question as to whether the oil industry is punishing the, the state and these parishes for filing these suits. I would say that each side does not think it's an open question. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and just give us a sense of how much money is being spent on this. Yeah. In 2014, in the primaries, about uh, um, about $500,000 or so was spent uh, in the local uh, elections in Plaquemines. This so far, uh, at least 100000 has been spent uh, by the trial lawyers on one side and the oil and gas industry on the other. So this gives an idea mm-hmm. of how much money they've injected into these races uh, so far. Which are is, doesn't sound like a tremendous amount of money, but on the other hand, this is a small parish, 23,000 people, maybe 7,000 people are going to vote. And these, these races generally draw very little money, in other words. Yeah, typically uh, uh, in the parish uh, council races, you win with about 500, 600, 700 votes. Yeah. So uh, uh, your, your dollar uh, goes a long way. goes a long way there. And last question, Tyler, how are people seeming to react to this down there? I mean, are, is this a big issue for the locals or is or is it really a big issue for these people spending money and the locals are still worried about grass cutting and mosquitoes and so forth? Yeah, that's a funny issue, Gordon, that uh, uh, local people that I spoke to, voters and even candidates, uh, many of them were, were remarking that uh, this is definitely not yet galvanized uh, the, the the public that they are not not many people apparently will be voting on the question of the lawsuits one way or the other. It does still still seem to be that the typical local issues are animating them. And this year they've also got some other issues, other concerns about potential poll, uh, tolls on the on that uh, uh, bridge there mm-hmm. um, going at Black uh, Bell Chase, uh, but. Uh, uh, it does not appear that uh, that the local voters in Plaquemines will be voting one way or the other on the lawsuits. Gotcha. Well, um, thanks so much for joining us, Tyler. Don't forget to vote, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. No matter who you're going to vote for, please vote. All right. Well, joining us now is John Zimmerman, who covers courts and whatnot for The Advocate. John's been writing a lot about the uh, sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks. How you doing? Good. So um, the big news this week, obviously, was the release of this list of 57 names of priests who have been, quote, credibly accused of abusing children over the last 50-ish years, longer in a couple of cases, and that that came on Friday. Um, John, you wrote a lot about this. I mean, why don't we back up for a minute and just what, what led up to this point? What led the what led Archbishop Amen to release this list? Well, Archbishop Amen has said he's been thinking about this for quite a while, but uh, this is kind of uh, what's been going on around the country with several dioceses and bishops uh, who have decided after many, many years and decades, really, to release uh, names uh, in lists of folks, some of whom were already known, of clergy members who had abused in the past, and, and, and those allegations had come out and they'd been removed from ministry. Some uh, the people are learning about for the first time. And this came, a lot of these reveals, in uh, after the uh, Pennsylvania grand jury uh, issued this uh monumental report in late July that uh, showed that the problem with clergy abuse in that state, at least in four dioceses in that state, was way, way bigger than had previously been known. Right. 
and in the past the church had sort of done a tally of of bad priests supposedly but they've they'd been reluctant to release names so this was kind of a watershed where they actually said these are the names it was they never released a list of names there, there have been some cases mostly in 2002 where they uh they acknowledged individuals who had had allegations in the past and who'd been uh removed from the ministry but they never said here is our roster here right. is sort of all of our history uh uh, this just horrible history in, in sort of one document. And uh, this is an effort to, again, uh, you know, try to restore trust and try to um, convey transparency and actually achieve some level of transparency in, in letting victims, survivors, and parishioners know, you know, who among mm-hmm. them was doing this stuff. So this list has 57 names on it. And what did, you know, in broad strokes, what did we learn from this? We learned more than half of those names for the first time in terms of those allegations. And there are some big names among the, the ones that we just learned about. Um, uh, there's ex-leaders a Jesuit and Shaw, uh, high school and, and Loyola University among those names. And so really we're just digging now into a lot of these previously unknown cases and seeing what we can find out. And as you said, this is an effort to restore trust uh, on the part of the church. And, you know, I think they went a long way towards doing that. But then the flip side is a couple of caveats with this. There's a lot of things that aren't on this list, right, such as, uh, for instance, employees of religious institutions who are not. This only covers priests and deacons. And then uh, people like religious brothers and, and nuns are also not on this list. Correct. And, and and some of the critics of the limitations of lists like these will will note that uh, nuns and brothers and, and school employees who are lay employees are often uh, the ones who have been uh, found to have done uh, these kind of heinous acts against children, but they're not included on this list. And the Archdiocese and, and Archbishop Amen essentially says, you know, Priest files are what we went through. We also included the religious orders. Not every diocese that's released list of names has included the priests of the religious orders, like the Jesuits and Dominicans, and they make up a very big share of the overall right. number of priests under the umbrella of the archdiocese. So our list, in a, so of course, many dioceses have not released a list at all, and then of those that have, ours kind of is more transparent than some and less transparent than others. Is that fair? That is fair. More transparent, as, as I just mentioned, in terms of the religious order priests, less mm-hmm. transparent in terms of some of the, uh, again, brothers and sisters, uh, but also in terms of some of the details that were given along with the names. In other words, in our, the list that we were given list a single allegation, presumably the first allegation, the date of the first allegation, but doesn't tell you if there were multiple allegations against a particular priest. We don't know how many allegations, how many victims. Uh, we don't know the dates that they served in these particular assignments. Uh, pastoral mm-hmm. uh, assignments. We know where, uh, at least within their diocese assignments, that they were placed, but, but we don't have a good sort of timeline for each of these priests about where they were when where the abuse occurred correct okay um and and then there is obviously when you're trying to achieve rebuild trust you know there's the flip side is there's some there's some details revealed in here that perhaps could erode trust or cause people to think oh well they didn't tell us that either and i mean we we flagged a few of these in, in a story yesterday but for instance let's talk about the case of 
Thomas Glasgow. Uh, he was, according to what they told us, he was they received an allegation in 2007 against uh, Father Glasgow, and he was removed from ministry in 2008. But this this list was the first time the public was hearing about it, and that seemed to fly in the face of kind of what the what our archbishop and others said they would do in 2002 after the sort of spotlight scandal. And what the bishops across the country said they all would do through the U.S. Conference of Bishops in 2002, which is be transparent and report to the public, to parishioners in, you know, in a given church that, you know, this person was in your church, this person uh, was accused of done these things, and we're letting you know now in this new sort of era of transparency. But what we found here are missteps. Uh, Glasgow was actually the most recent person removed from ministry. and Only one removed since 2005, I believe. That's right. right. And they didn't report it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it makes, you know, it's, it's sort of easy for critics to say, well, you know. You're not following your own rules. Exactly. Now, we should be clear, this happened under Archbishop Hughes rather than Archbishop Amond. Um, and this archbishop has acknowledged that that was a misstep on on the previous archbishop's part, and we did try to reach Archbishop Hughes, and and he declined to comment. And to be fair, Archbishop Hughes did release the names and of of others uh, around that same period of time, two thousand two, two thousand three. So it's a little unclear uh, why Glasgow uh, didn't of, get that sort of scrutiny. That's right. And this could be important, I guess, in terms. I mean, the, the 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 church's rules are that these people should no longer represent themselves as priests or be viewed as priests in good standing. And of course, we, we don't have any information that that uh, Father Glasgow has been doing that. But on the other hand, we don't know that he wasn't. And we have seen other examples, including in this list of priests who were quietly removed from ministry and yet continued to say mass and so forth. And I suppose theoretically, if you were a a parent of a child, you would think you would have no reason to think that this priest was not somebody that your kid should be alone with. That's right. Some of those people are looking at this list now and saying, you know, kind of jogging their memories and looking back and saying, okay, this says he was removed, but so how come two or three years later I watched him do X, Y, or Z in a priestly function? Right. It's good. You know, it, it's concerning I think, yeah. to a lot of people. Okay. Well, uh, more stories in the weeks to come on this. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about this subject on the podcast recently, but it's a big story in this community. Um, Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. Last, we're joined today by Clancy Dubose, political editor of Gambit, and more importantly, one of Frank Donzi's oldest and dearest friends. Thanks for coming by, Clancy. Thank you, Gordon. It's a, a sad honor because Frank was such a dear friend, but I'm very happy to, uh, share some stories about Frank. Appreciate it. Yeah, I wish you were here to just talk about politics, but we're going to talk a little bit about Frank and see if we can get through this one without crying. Um, Clancy, how long did you know Frank? We were classmates at Holy Cross High School. We both graduated in 1972. We met in the eighth grade, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I think it was a rainy day, and we wound up sitting next to each other in the bleachers of the old gym at Holy Cross. This was when it was still located in the lower nine. Mm-hmm. And Frank was from nearby, he right? He was from the upper nine, long before the name Bywater uh-huh. or even uh, Marini was, was used. Uh-huh. It, was, it was just the upper nine back then. And 
I think I kind of knew who he was and he knew who I was, but we hadn't really met. So he just turned to me and started talking. And it was Frank. It was mm -hmm. just the same Frank Dinesy that he was the day before up until the minute he passed away. Mm -hmm. Down to earth, engaging, really authentic. Mm -hmm. He was a real New Orleanian. He was an authentic Ninth Ward guy. Yeah. He had no affectations whatsoever. And we were both, what, 13 years old, something like that. He just started talking to me, asked me who I was or where I, where I grew up. And we traded stories about where we went to grammar school and why we're at Holy Cross. And after that half an hour or so conversation, I knew that I had made a new friend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the way everybody was at Holy Cross. Every time we had a reunion, everybody wanted to talk to Frank, just yeah. like in the newsroom. Everybody wanted to check in with Frank. Right. His uh, desk was the hub. Yeah, yeah. The mission control, I think yeah. somebody called it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us about the nicknames you guys came up uh -huh. with. Well, Frank grew up uh, in the Upper Nine at Stallings Playground. And this is a different time before the term political correctness and nicknames weren't always uh, kind, but they weren't, uh, they weren't uttered with meanness in mind. And Frank was Italian. And his childhood friends, when he was around eight or nine years old, pinned the nickname Dago on him. <laughs> These were all guys, they were known as the St. Cecilia guys at Holy Cross. They all went to St. Cecilia Grammar School in the upper nine, and they all came over to Holy Cross in the eighth grade. I started there in seventh grade. And they were very closely knit, all really good guys. Mm -hmm. And Frank was the hub of them back mm -hmm. then. And um, one day I said to him, in high school, I said, Frank, they really call you Dago? And he said, I mean, they would say it like calling somebody Sonny right. or Clancy instead of Clarence. It was just, <laughs> they didn't, there was nothing to, no meanness behind right. it, but it still, it was the word. Right. I said, Frank, I can't believe they call you. He goes, oh, I says, they've been calling me that since I was a kid. He says, no big deal. <laughs> Nobody means anything by it. Well, one day in junior or senior year of high school, we were in phys ed class again, and we were playing basketball, and the ball came to me. And I didn't have a shot, so I just, you know, kind of on a wing and a prayer, I did a hook shot from the foul line, and it went in. And everybody said, oh, God, that, what a lucky shot. You'll never do that again. I said, well, give me the ball. And, of course, <laughs> lightning strikes light, twice. Lightning does strike twice. I did it again without being guarded, and it went in. So Frank started calling me Hook after that. But then he said, no, I think the the real nickname should be Shithook, so, <laughs> which was a name you would give to somebody you didn't like. But Frank and I liked each other a lot. But that was the nature of our relationship. We would tease each other gently and lovingly. And for years, even until after we both became reporters, it was an inside joke. He was the only person who would call me Hook. Mm -hmm. And if we'd say it with a wink, that. and we'd smile and wink yeah. at each other and say, yeah, that's that's me. Uh, so that, that's kind of how we grew up. That was a Ninth Ward thing, you know. <laughs> and you guys... Uh were hired at the Picayune roughly the same time? I got, well, I went to school locally at uh, then LSUNO, mm -hmm. later UNO. So I lucked into a job after my freshman year as a summer intern, and I stayed on after mm -hmm. that. I was kind of the Jimmy Olsen. I was uh -huh. 17 years old when I got <laughs> wow. hired. Frank got out of LSU either in 76 or 77, and he called me when he had applied, and he said, hey, look, I'm applying at the Picayune. By then I was working full time. He said, can I put you down as a reference? I said, sure. And, uh, you know, it was very, Picayune back then was not a great newspaper, but it was a fun place to work and very sure. informal. So I walked into Ed Tunstall's office and said, hey, look, my friend Frank Dinesy has applied. He says, yeah, I got his resume. I said, he's a really good guy. Yeah. You know, knew him since Holy Cross, yada, yada. I said, but I know you got to, you know, hire who you think is best. 
Well, about a, two weeks later, he just happened to be passing through the newsroom, and he said, uh, we're going to hire your friend Donzie. And what I remember telling him is, you won't regret it. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure nobody regretted that. <laughs> yeah. It was great for Frank. It was even better for the Picayune. Yeah. I remember Frank telling me that the reference checks they wanted besides you, I guess. They they asked him, what bars do you drink? And that was... <laughs> No, it would questions. have been Markey's. Yep. So, uh, Mike Markey was a Holy Cross guy. Yeah. Herstel, Danny yeah. Herstel was a classmate of Holy Cross. It was all the Ninth Ward bars, the Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was good enough to get him hired. That's right. So what, um, obviously... They've lowered the standards <laughs> since then, I think. <laughs> now it's some kind of fern bar, probably. Um, what... Obviously, Frank touched a lot of lives and a lot yes. of journalists really looked up to him. What, what do you think made him so special as a journalist? I think what made him special as a journalist was the same thing that made him an exceptional human being. He had a warmth, a kindness, a genuineness. He was authentic. He didn't have a, an insincere bone in his body. Whether he was talking to the Pope or to a panhandler, he was the same Frank. Mm-hmm. Whether it was the mayor or a cab driver, some civic leader or just his next door neighbor, he was always Frank, the exact same person. And he treated people with respect, but he did his job. Mm -hmm. He was honest. He was eminently fair. But he got to the truth. Uh, I think it was you or Bruce Nolan who wrote that he would ask a politician a question. If they gave him the canned answer, he would say, okay, I get that. But, and he would ask the same question from a slightly different angle. And he would keep going Mm -hmm. at a a 10 10 degree to left of center or to north of center till he got the real answer. And the politicians knew that he was getting to it, and but they still loved him. He used to call it his Columbo question. Yeah, he that's would, right. Uh, he was, he'd, he'd, he'd pretend that's a good, good, he, he he'd was walk the, away and then he'd say, oh, 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 uh, Mr. Mayor, one other thing one other I forgot thing. to yeah, ask yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, that's a good description. He was kind of the Columbo of political reporters. And, yeah. uh, and, and everybody respected him, loved him, and trusted him because – he was never afraid to let his own humanity show, and he was never denied any politicians their humanity, yeah. which so many people do now, yeah. whether it's how they're treated by the press or by the public. Everybody's being dehumanized, and Frank did the opposite. He always respected and nurtured others' humanity, and it mm-hmm. made people love him yeah. and trust him. Even people who disagreed with him. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I was really struck by how uh, in his obitu- in the obituaries of, uh, that came out this weekend that uh, several politicians and other public figures, you know, praised him, which you don't know. very warmly of him because, again, that was that humanity thing. I remember one who could not have been interviewed, but, you know, Frank's first beat when he came to uh, the Times-Picayune was St. Bernard and Plaquemines. And I I knew, not well, but I knew Shalon Perez, who was, you know, Frank covered the, the end of the Perez empire. Yeah. And while this was all going on, I, I saw Shalon Perez somewhere, and I said, you know, Mr. Perez, uh, do you know my friend Frank Donzi? And he started saying nice things about <laughs> what, what a great—and this is a guy who did not talk to reporters. Right. And he said nice things about Frank. So if you get Mark Morrell and Shalon Perez, everybody in between, yeah, that says something pretty special about somebody because they all said the same thing, that he was professional, he was respectful, they, they respected and liked him, mm-hmm. they knew, and they thought he did a good job. Yeah. Well, we're going to miss him terribly. Um, we are. Frank's funeral is uh, going to be held this Saturday. I don't think arrangements are complete yet. Are, Last know? I heard, no, it's it's at St. Pius Catholic okay. Church in Lake Vista. Visitation at 9 or 9.30 and a funeral mass at 
noon. Okay. And afterwards, I suspect a bunch of us will be gathering somewhere to drink and tell stories. We will. We'll tell many more Frank stories, all with great love. And I'm sure now they'll all start calling me Hook. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Clancy. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.